This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us worship the Lord our God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoice. Join me in prayer. Holy God, We praise you for all of the wonders you have worked. And yet, despite your greatness, 
you remain near to us. We are the beneficiaries of grace upon grace. And so we do thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered in the sanctuary and those of us worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to be together, and the word of welcome that we extend is one extended on behalf of Jesus Christ, which means there are no qualifying adjectives attached to that welcome ever. All are welcome in God's house, and in that way we greet one another. We are Delighted to be together, and um, I'd like to invite you to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service. The fellowship hour will be, again, on the 21st Street sidewalk. You may get there by way of either exit. Uh, just take care to not pack in too tightly as you go. Uh, City of Philadelphia is still under a mask mandate, and so we are abiding by those. Everyone but your worship leader should be masked. We will only take them off as we are leading worship. Uh, so that's for the benefit of those with hearing loss. I'd like to highlight a few things from your, uh, for the week to come for our common life together. The first is to note that you will see in your bulletin an insert. That insert is for the benefit of our officer nominating committee. It is that time of year when we ask you, the congregation, to help that committee to discern whom God is calling to serve in leadership here at First Church. So please do give it prayerful consideration, fill out the form, and place it in the receptacle that is either... Uh, uh, outside the door here or down in, uh, in the church office. We'd be delighted to receive those recommendations. I am also very pleased to highlight an upcoming adult education series that will begin this Wednesday on a century of Christian ethics led by the marvelous Reverend Cindy Jarvis. She is inviting uh, excellent speakers to join her in presenting to us. And this week's speaker will be Dr. Nancy Duff, who is an ethicist at Princeton Theological Seminary. She was actually my medical ethics professor, and I hope you will take advantage of that opportunity. That's five. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's 5 o'clock on Wednesday. Uh, with these things noted, let us continue our worship with the confession of sin. The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ reigns in power for us, Christ even prays for us. With such assurance, we need not fear confession, but simply draw to our Maker in candor, first together and then in silence. Merciful God, you have called us, and we confess we do not know sometimes what that means. Where you have been clear that you want our whole selves, we have held back thinking instead you might be satisfied with a half measure. Where you have told us what is required of us, we have substituted easy piety. Forgive us when we cling to our own ideas about what and your, your vision for us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.
saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our Old Testament reading today comes from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 7 through 9. Listen to the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, save our Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel, See, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor, together a great company. They shall return here. 
With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I have become a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Our second reading comes from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints at high priest those who are subject to weakness, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson is taken from the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel narrative, selected verses. We pick up a lesson from two weeks ago, which we didn't read due to the ongoing sermon series, and then we add the lection for today at the end of that. So listen for the word of God as it comes to us from the 10th chapter of Mark. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he had heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. The second story of the morning. They came to Jericho, and he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, 
he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In a few weeks, our annual giving campaign begins. The committee is already hard at work, and you will be hearing from them soon. As I said in the money sermon a few weeks ago, God cares about what we do with what God has entrusted to us. And I've made no secret about the fact that I'm not bashful about saying that churches should talk about stewardship. Uh, But I know that for many, the word stewardship in the title of a sermon tends to make eyes glaze over as many believe it portends a dry-as-dust sermon laced with guilt about all the reasons we're not giving more than we are. Now, there's a reason why both congregations and preachers feel this way. In a book entitled The Crisis in the Churches, Fiscal Malaise and Spiritual Woe, Princeton sociologist Robert Wuthnow explores attitudes about giving, both from the clergy who preach about it and from the congregations who listen to them. The first time I read this book, oh, about a decade ago, I was horrified by what I read, by what uh, congregants had to say about the bad feelings they had about what their clergy said about money. It was not flattering. But over the following decade, as I have thought more and more about it and revisited it, a different theme has emerged to me. And that is that of deep faithfulness on the part of clergy who are willing to have conversations that others may not want to have, but also deep faithfulness on the part of congregations who listen attentively to what is being said. And so in that spirit, with no apology for what I am going to say about stewardship, I want you all to know I already believe that you are generous. 
I already believe that you want to be generous, and I believe that your generosity is motivated by your faith in Jesus Christ. So I will make you this pledge. For the next 18 minutes or so, I won't moralize about giving 10% and saving 10% and living on the rest. It, it may very well be good advice, but it certainly scalds anyone who has ever had to replace their furnace on short notice on a tight budget. I won't suggest there is one way for thinking about giving. I won't even mention your pledge card. We will leave that for the annual giving committee. In return, I ask that as I wax poetical about the joy of stewardship, you will hear the word of the Lord in terms of discipleship. As we consider how we steward our lives, our time, our gifts, our finances, the whole shebang, what we are really talking about is discipleship. And that, I believe, we may take some guidance from Bartimaeus. Mark's gospel has a literary technique wherein he likes to bookend passages of Scripture in such a way that they highlight features within each story. And the story of Bartimaeus follows this pattern. Bartimaeus' discipleship his getting up and leaving everything and following Jesus along the way is juxtaposed with the story of the rich young ruler who, of course, failed to liquidate his assets and follow Jesus. You just heard both stories. A rich man comes to Jesus asking what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Now, if you're a Reformed theologian, and we are all theologians of a sort, this particular question may perplex you. Dr. Cynthia Rigby uses the analogy of ivory soap to show how the church has swallowed a toxic myth, and it goes like this. We have a tendency to believe that God will do 99.44% of the work for us if we can just muster those 56 one-hundredths of a percentage point of faithfulness to seal the deal. Never mind that this is a rampant distortion of the doctrine of free grace. Free means free, or it's not free. Maybe you've heard some version of this. You don't have to do anything to be saved. All you have to do is accept Jesus. Now, do you see the problem with that statement? Let's slow it down and pay very attention, very close attention to the verbs. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do. Theologians call this semi-Pelagianism. Pelagius was a British monk in the 4th and 5th century who taught that humankind have the ability to affect our own salvation by what we do. Pelagius' teachings very quickly led to a form of works righteousness that was then and is still now rejected by the church. It's very easy to spot the heresy in claiming we affect our own salvation, that we make our own salvation happen. But semi-Pelagianism 
is quite a bit more insidious. It couches its terminology in free grace and suggests just exactly what Dr. Rigby cautions us against. You don't have to do a thing. Now, see, that sounds like a robust denial of works righteousness, doesn't it? Until you tackle on the next sentence. All you have to do. If we have to do anything, it's not free grace. I don't know why that is so hard to accept, except that I know that it is. I've caught myself slipping into it on occasion. Maybe it's because we don't, at our basic level, trust that anything is ever truly free. Now, I have heard all the arguments to make grace into a transactional act. And the truth of the matter is, they don't hold baptismal water. And they surely don't hold grace. Maybe you've heard this old chestnut. Well, if you ask for forgiveness as a sin, and then you do the same sin again, well, then you clearly haven't repented, and you can't be forgiven. That's a load of hogwash. I'm not sure what it takes to convince the world that the Lord of the universe, the ground of all being, the creator of heaven and earth ex nihilo, is not so impotent as to need us to do something to make God love us. It's God light to suggest otherwise. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks a question. Any one of us might ask, teacher, what must I do? And the text replies simply that Jesus, loving him, said, go and sell what you have and follow me. For an investor to sell his assets is much akin to asking a fisherman to leave his nets. Nowhere else in Mark's gospel account does Mark describe Jesus as loving someone. Not that it's not clear in Mark that Jesus loves his followers, that Jesus loves all of humankind, but here in this instance, Mark spells it out. This young man came to Jesus seeking guidance on how to live his life, and Jesus loved him for it. And yet, when the dust settles, when the last amen is said, the young man decides against discipleship, or at least he decides against discipleship at the moment. We don't know what happens later. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, does not. In fact, rather the opposite is true. When every voice around him is clamoring for him to shut up, keep quiet, make no proclamation, make no demand upon the gospel, he won't pipe down. Again, the text tells us many sternly ordered him to keep quiet. And Jesus demands that they bring him to him. The text tells us that Bartimaeus, throwing off his cloak, ran to him. Now, the cloak was the means by which a beggar collects alms. 
spreading it out on the side of the road to receive them. On a pilgrim journey, such as the road into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, when Jesus is walking along this way, throwing off one's cloak for a beggar who needs it to to earn their living is a seismic shift. It is a change from one way of being to another. Juxtaposed with a rich young ruler who couldn't divest, Bartimaeus, the blind man, sees clearly the need to change and to follow. And in his last blindness, deafness, healing miracle, Jesus restores sight to Bartimaeus, and then Bartimaeus follows him on the way. And between these stories of this rich young ruler and blind Bartimaeus, we encounter the rather vainglorious story of the disciples jockeying for positions on Jesus' right and left in the kingdom, wanting each of them to be the best, the most honored disciples. And I think what Mark is doing in this moment here with these stories juxtaposing one who follows, one who couldn't, and a whole lot who didn't get it, is trying to say that when Jesus calls us, Jesus is asking us to make a commitment, and it's a commitment that we must be serious about. Because if we take seriously the promises of God's free grace, there is both risk and cost for us. The risk is that we might be changed. The cost is that to be changed, you must give up your life in order to save it. There are only a handful of faith claims that I am comfortable making without any qualifications. And one of them is this. When Jesus calls us to follow him. He means it. He means it. And when the going gets hard, he means for us to look to him for our comfort, to look to him for our wisdom in discerning the way he would have us go. And when Jesus invites us to follow him, it's not a forced march, but it is an offer given with an expectation of deliberate living. Not a requirement for grace. Remember the way it unfolded. Jesus, loving him, he already loved him, then said, go and do this. Discipleship is how we respond to the free grace of God. I love the way that Margaret Kearney put it in a recent article in the Christian Century. She writes, the kingdom of heaven is like a library. Its power has nothing to do with coercion or control. It strives toward order, but does not make an idol of its own rules. What it has, it must give away. And somehow, in giving everything away, the library only becomes more itself. When I read that, it put me in mind of a woman I knew many years ago. Her name was Elizabeth Patrick. Her husband was Lewis Patrick, who for many years was the pastor of the congregation that I served in Charlotte. And when she died, when we were planning her memorial service, her daughters were reminiscing about what it was like to live in the manse on the church property. And they told me this story. Now, 
What you need to know is that Dr. Patrick, the pastor, was a larger-than-life personality described by Will Willimon as having a voice that would make God envious. But central through all the stories I heard about Lou uh, through the years that I I was the pastor of the church, uh, there was a recurring theme that he was always willing to take a controversial stand on behalf of the gospel if that was where his conscience led him. And one such stand that Lou took was on desegregation. Now, a side note. As a 46-year-old minister who grew up in the South, I cannot imagine how legally enforced segregation ever seemed like a morally defensible viewpoint. But the rhetoric about segregation was laced through with self-justification. So I... I confess I shudder at times when I wonder what someday another pastor will see as the shortcomings of the church in 2021 to which I may be blind. So a great deal of humility is called for in judging our predecessors. But Lou, when many were afraid to speak, was unrelenting in his opposition to segregation. But his his stand cost his family something, cost Elizabeth something. One night when they were sleeping, they were waking to the sounds in the front yard and looked out the window to find a cross burning in front of the manse. Her daughters said that Elizabeth knew that the clan were lurking in the shadows, hoping to see the family cowering in fear. So she gathered the three little girls together, told them to go out into the backyard and get sticks. And together, the family went out into the front yard, and she put marshmallows on the end of each one of the sticks and had the girls roast the marshmallows over the flames, saying to them, we must never be so afraid that we don't do what is right. Christian discipleship calls us to live like we mean what we say. Mrs. Patrick's refusal to live in fear of those who sought to terrorize her family and silence her gospel claim stands to me to this day as a marker of what it means to live like you mean to live. It is the sort of response that is built by year over year, relying on God's grace to sustain us. This is a stewardship sermon. And what I mean by this is that I want us all to consider what it means to be stewards of our calling. You have a calling. You have been invited to sell what you have and follow. You have been invited to drop your nets by the seashore and follow. You have been invited to cast off your cloak and follow along the way. And what it is, is life in Christ. It may not always be easy. It may not be obvious at times what Christ calls us to do. But the stewardship of our calling is an invitation 
and even more, it is an opportunity for us to live as though our faith matters. The stewardship of our calling is to be God's people and to consider seriously what life looks like when we follow Jesus on the way. And there are plenty of other paths we can follow. There are easier paths we can follow. There are paths we may tread that will be more popular or with more fellow journeyers or perhaps more fun. But Jesus never promised that following him would be easy. Instead, he promised us a light yoke because he does all the heavy lifting. As you consider the stewardship of your calling, what is Jesus calling you to do? Because when we do it, we become more fully ourselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us affirm our faith together with the ancient baptismal creed of the Church. What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Remembering that all that we have and all that we are is a gift from God, let us return to God the gifts of what we have taken from God's abundance and the prayers of our hearts with our morning offering.
let us pray. Almighty God, you alone are holy, and you who have blessed us with abundance upon abundance, ask nothing in return for us but that we should love you. And so we return these offerings knowing that you will receive them, that you will bless them and multiply them and use them, and that in so doing your kingdom would be made evident among us. We are awed by the mystery of who you are and how you multiply the blessings of our lives. We are humbled by your greatness, and we are chastened by your mercy. You who are love also give love, and you who give love also command love. And so it is that we receive the charge to bear one another's burdens, to pray for the communities where we live, to offer our prayers to you as surely as we offer our offerings. As a people of faith, we come before the throne of your grace to lay our prayers before you. We pray for this world that you have made and that you love, and for all the people of the world, for nations we engage on a daily basis, as well as those, some perhaps, whose names we scarcely know. Teach us to learn to love and value all your children as you value each of us. Make us sowers of peace and mercy. May the greatness of your love and the generosity of your mercy toward us motivate us to be givers of grace wherever we may. We pray for our city. May we exemplify generosity and extend the hand of friendship to those who live and work and reside among us. May we reach out to those who need us in order to show forth the love of Christ by being the body of Christ. Open our eyes to those whom we may help in order that we might do so in real and tangible ways, both this body, the church, but also in our own lives. You call us into being as a community, and so it is that we pray for the church, for the church universal, for the Presbyterian church, and for First Church, where we make our homes. We ask your blessing. We ask that you would continue to let us to be a light to the world. Give us your grace and your peace, and in turn, help us extend that grace and peace to all of your people. Grant us your shalom as we live day to day. For we make all of our prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
time when I was having a particularly difficult season in ministry, a colleague took me out to lunch to give me a pep talk. And she said to me, God has given you a calling. And what God has given, nobody can take away. But then she went on to say, and you are the only one who can be the steward of your calling. And so I say to you, you are the only one who can be the steward of your calling. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.